the interesting thing about this is that it's not just presented in these domestic terms of British society and the balance of town and country within Britain, it's also presented as the reason why Britain won the Napoleonic Wars, that the French revolutionaries thought that uh, peasant proprietorship, petite culture, um, was uh, uh, a superior mode of social organization. They thought that, you know, small landholders were patriotic citizens and good soldiers. Um, but no, it turned out that Britain's superior agrarian efficiency through having these large farms uh, enabled it to win the war. And now the task is to stop uh, Ireland going further down this uh, path of uh, rural immiseration through overpopulation on small and inefficient uh, land optics. Hello, listener, and welcome to New Work in Intellectual History, a podcast that interviews intellectual historians about their recently published work. We're produced by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St. Andrews. I'm your host for this episode. My name is Lessa Anderson. Please follow the Institute on Twitter at St. Andrews IIH. You can find lots of online resources, interviews, and much, much more at intellectualhistory.net, where you can also find links to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, etc. If you wish to support our podcast, we have a support page where you can contribute whatever money you can spare. Everything will go towards keeping the activities of the Institute running. Today, I'm joined by Dr. James Stafford. James is assistant professor at Columbia University, and his recent book, his first book, which will be the subject of our discussion today, is The Case of Ireland, Commerce, Empire, and the European Order, 1776 to 1848. And the book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here and thanks for listening. So I, um, as the title suggests, your book is less about Ireland itself than about the case of Ireland. And, and instead of studying Ireland within an exclusively Anglo-Irish context, you place Ireland within a larger European discussion about commercial society. Now, what, what is it about Ireland that makes it a good vantage point from which to understand 18th and 19th century discussions or visions of commercial society? Yes. So, I mean, I think really there are two things. Uh, one is its proximity to Britain, its closeness to the heart of the British Empire and the length of time that it's been under British rule already by uh, the 18th century. And secondly, uh, in a more complex way, it's what we can think of as the, the hybrid nature of its society as uh, being one that contains uh, many institutions that we could understand as aristocratic in line with other European states at the time, um, but with elements which are clearly also colonial and which are understood at the time to be colonial. Uh, and so it's this, this hybridity, this uh, difficulty of kind of placing uh, Ireland in terms of understanding different models of social organisation, which also makes it fascinating to contemporaries. So, you know, talking about first the proximity to Britain, if there's a, there's a sense in the 18th century, right, that Britain is starting to outperform other European states, most notably uh, France and uh, the Dutch Republic, uh, 
in terms of its capacity to marshal economic resources, whether derived through colonialism, through the trade and enslaved people, through the uh, financial resources of the City of London and the Bank of England, it can marshal commercial society to military ends and specifically to naval ends. Uh, but that also clearly has an impact on how Britain functions uh, domestically as a form of parliamentary government that's representative, but not necessarily uh, democratic. That's a, a republic disguised as a monarchy, as, as, as Montesquieu uh, famously says. Um, and Ireland is somewhere where Montesquieu and others kind of see uh, the way in which British politics and uh, the sort of metabolization, if you like, of commerce and its imperatives by the British political system kind of work themselves out in the policies pursued, the sort of mercantile policies pursued towards Ireland. And then the question for many of my uh, subjects in the book, the individuals in my book is, you know, can the nature of Britain and its empire be transformed from Ireland uh, or through Ireland? Um, or can Ireland in some way escape, uh, stake out a different position either within or outside of uh, the political structure of uh, the British Empire? So that's that's one, uh, in a sense, kind of geopolitical or geoeconomic dimension about Ireland and its relationship uh, to the British Empire and then the place of the British Empire in Europe. But I think, uh, you know, related to that, but distinct from that, there's also the second problematic, which is about, um, in a sense, you know, on a European scale, the end of feudalism and what comes afterwards. Now, feudalism is obviously a historical term of art, but it's a product of uh, the Enlightenment. It's a product of, of particularly the Scottish and, 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 and French, and to some extent the Italian Enlightenments, uh, thinking about, uh, well, what was it to have a society where labor services could be commanded by landowners and what happens after that. And Britain on Adam Smith's reading and the, the reading of, of other uh, Scottish and, and French uh, analysts, you know, and, and England in particular has exited feudalism, if you like, uh, quicker or has started to exit it in advance of other societies. So in a sense, it it's potentially looks like a roadmap to um, the future in some sense. But Ireland presents a particularly challenging problem of transition because it doesn't have an ancient feudal order. It has a 17th century colonial order. Its social structure is the product of large-scale expropriation of uh, Anglo-Norman Catholic aristocracy by Cromwell's armies and their descendants in the 17th century. So, uh, and, and then it has this uh, religious structure of exclusion, which crucially for a lot of these uh, thinkers, Irish, British, European, is a structure of exclusion from land ownership. So you have this situation where you have something that looks like an aristocracy, you know, they, they wear the same clothes, they have the big houses, they buy the paintings, you know, they do all the things that other European aristocrats do. But they're founded, you know, they're of recent origin, of dubious legitimacy. And they're protected uh, within Ireland by the system of religious laws, um, the penal laws, as, as they're, they're termed. So Ireland then is a particularly interesting problem of transition out of this aristocratic come colonial society. Well, how do you get out of that? And how does Britain uh, play a role in getting Ireland out of that and moving beyond whatever that is to whatever the future looks like? You know, what Smith terms commercial society in this kind of stadial 
vision of history. So that, as I say, there's a geopolitical dimension, but there's also a sort of civilizational or world historical dimension. And uh, these are constantly being connected to one another. Thank you. That, that's, that's a brilliant overview of, of, of Ireland and the situation of Ireland in the 18th century. Um, you, your book takes its title from a, a famous uh, publication by William Molyneux from uh, 1698, I believe it was. He wrote The Case of Ireland. Um, and you explain how Molyneux's text becomes important through the 18th century and, and has a place within the Enlightenment critique of empire, especially British empire. Uh, can you take us through the significance of Molyneux? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, Molyneux was an Irish philosopher, uh, also a trained uh, lawyer and a member of the Irish parliament that sat at, at Dublin and played a major role in the government of the, the 18th century kingdom of Ireland down to the Union of 1801. And um, in 1698, he writes uh, this text, The Case of Ireland, it's about, you know, 100 pages long. It's not a kind of, it, it, it is a, it's a pamphlet. Uh, but in it, he tries to defend the um, constitutional rights, the constitutional status of the Irish Parliament. And what he's arguing for there is that, well, in the revolution of uh, 1688, uh, England, and then subsequently Scotland has asserted their rights of parliamentary uh, self-government vis-a-vis the crown. And uh, yet Ireland, through commercial legislation, uh, particularly regulations on Irish woolen cloth exports, the Irish parliament has been marked out as a subordinate and a colonial parliament. So what Molyneux is claiming in that, in that text, he's making a constitutional argument rooted in precedent and history, but also, I mean, one of the interesting things about the text is that it's the first time that uh, John Locke is named as the author of mm. uh, the second treaties on government uh, publicly. So he's also making an argument derived from a more kind of natural rights tradition about what it is to be a self-governing society. Uh, and he's using, you know, both uh, arguments to claim that it's not legitimate for Westminster to regulate Ireland's foreign trade. So you have this situation where trade is being made the measure of Ireland's capacity for self-government, foreign trade. Uh, which, you know, is actually quite a, a, a striking uh, and unique thing. I mean, something I talk about in the book is how in, in the second chapter of the book, which is about attempts to reform the Anglo-Irish commercial and constitutional relationship following the American Revolution, is that that's a demand that's very hard to reconcile with maintaining the British Empire as a coherent commercial entity with a kind of common external tariff border, as it were, if, if the Irish... Parliament can just sort of make its own laws. There are even people who claim it can make its own treaties uh, with other European states. Then you've not really got, you know, an empire anymore. You've got you've got something else. So the case of Ireland is interesting for its core constitutional argument, which is carried forward and is problematized in the 1780s and again in the union debates about what it means to be a self-governing community within a larger polity. So it connects to debates about federalism and things as well, um, has a large American reception. But in terms of um, its immediate significance uh, in the earlier period, sort of during the 18th century, what the case of Ireland does is dramatizes uh, this idea of um, England becoming a state that is 
you know, governed by parliament, which is free and self-governing in some respects, which is imperial um, and which is commercial. And, you know, what happens when those three things come together? And, you know, it turns out that if uh, you're not in the uh, core constituencies represented by uh, the English government uh, and you're part of this uh, imperial system, or maybe you're in an alliance trading relationship with it, like, say, Portugal, um, then uh, you're liable to be on the sharp end of uh, British mercantile lobbying. So then in, a, in essence, you know, what is a, a parliamentary and commercial state? It's a playground of lobbyists and mercantile interests. And indeed, this is what happens in the Irish case in the 1690s. It's not that the British administration at the time uh, set out to uh, slap a debilitating series of tariffs on Ireland. It's actually a kind of parliamentary campaign by West Country woolen interests who kind of force a vote on this and 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 bring the the Irish woolen legislation into into action. So um, yeah, what 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 the controversy around Molyneux and there is a controversy um, around the text. There's many many responses uh, from the English side saying that this is. Um, uh, misunderstands the nature of Ireland's subordination, that Ireland's a conquered country, it can be understood as a colony, Westminster has every right to legislate for it. But the sort of impact of that controversy is to really expose the way in which uh, English mercantile politics works, which is if you cross the interests of a powerful producing constituency, then you will be stamped on. Uh, so then the question is, well, you know, what does that mean if you're, you know, other colonies in the British Empire? But what does it mean if you're another European country attempting to uh, negotiate with this prickly, complicated, uh, unpredictable uh, commercial state? Uh, and that's, I think, the reason why Montesquieu uh, makes reference to this problem, described describes Ireland as being crushed by the right of nations, uh, because he exactly sees that Ireland is a pretty good illustration of, of uh, the dangers you get yourself into in entangling with this uh, state, which is at once commercial and parliamentary in its governance. Yes. So you, so you mentioned Molyneux and his case for legislative independence, mm -hmm. uh, especially in matters of trade, which, of course, is, is, is the one form of exclusion that I Ireland is subjected to. But but you also mentioned this other form of exclusion, which was the exclusion of Catholics within Ireland from most spheres of public life, holding public office and, and land ownership. And the Enlightenment also advances a criticism of this form of exclusion. Uh, can you say a little bit more about the penal laws and, and how they're criticized in the, in the Enlightenment? Yes. So, you know, the penal laws are, in a sense, proof of uh, the, you know, very extensive um, reach and authority that the Irish Parliament, uh, you know, then sitting at, at Dublin, you know, had over most areas of, of Irish life in a sense that, you know, foreign trade was one of the few places someone like Molyneux could, could go uh, to complain that um, his, uh, uh, you know, people like him, Anglo-Irish Protestants, uh, you know, didn't have the right to govern the Irish kingdom. So um, the penal laws, I mean, so there is a sort of internal critique of them, which I describe um, in the first chapter of the book from uh, Charles O'Connor, uh, who is one of the few surviving Catholic landowners in the country. He owns land in County Roscommon. Uh, he's an antiquarian, uh, someone who's interested in sort of the deep history of Ireland. Um, 
but he also writes quite extensively, as nearly everybody writing in Ireland in the 18th century does, on agrarian questions and agrarian improvement. And his argument uh, is very simply that insecurity of landholding among the majority of uh, the country's inhabitants is not conducive to its improvement in the sense that its uh, uh, Protestant rulers uh, want to improve it. And this, this term, uh, improvement, uh, you know, has a very specific meaning in the 18th century. Uh, it can be understood as a kind of uh, civilizing process. It has a kind of environmental aspect. It's about transforming landscapes, enclosing fields, most notably, uh, creating uh, larger uh, monocultures of, of, of growing different crops. It's about drainage, it's about road building, but it's also about um, uh, making a society kind of prosperous and, and balanced and socially uh, stable. So uh, there's a sort of twin emphasis on agriculture and foreign trade. And there's also, I mean, one of the reasons why specifically bans on Irish wool exports are so devastating for Irish improvers is that, um, you know, that we're still in a kind of proto-industrial era in the 18th century. So domestic weaving of, of, of woolen cloth is something that can offer additional income to, you know, large numbers of, of people in the Irish countryside. So landlords are kind of thinking, well, how am I tenantry going to subsist? Yes, farming is part of it, but they could get additional disposable income, if you like, and employ, you know, more women and children and inculcate a spirit of Protestant industry uh, by, by weaving as well. So there's a sense in which this uh, external problematic of Irish trade regulation then impacts on people's visions of, of what the internal structure of that society can look like. That's why it kind of smarts so much because it's seen as frustrating improvement. So there is this discourse of uh, improvement that, uh, you know, Irish Protestant landholders and also clergymen very significantly, so Jonathan Swift, George Berkeley, are engaged in. And what uh, Charles O'Connor is able to do is say, huh, so you're really bothered about improvement, about how people conduct themselves on the land, and yet you don't hold out even the prospect of uh, property ownership, even leases of sufficient length uh, to build up a Catholic farming interest. You say you care about improvement. Well, these would be two, you know, obvious things uh, to start with, uh, because uh, uh, as it is, you know, people are leaving the country and they're turning to uh, grazing, cattle grazing, which O'Connor sees as, uh, again, in common with many Protestant improvers of the 18th century as a kind of retrograde step, a step back in the scale of civilization towards pastoralism, somewhat ironic given where we know the Irish economy then goes in the 19th and, and 20th centuries. Um, uh, so that's O'Connor's argument. And then uh, someone who is close to O'Connor, who is in regular correspondence with him, is Edmund Burke. And it's one of the younger Edmund Burke's kind of first uh, causes is to highlight at a more philosophical level the way in which, uh, as, as he describes it, it's one thing to defend a religious establishment which is subscribed to by the majority of the population in these terms. It's not that he has a sort of blanket position in favour of toleration under all circumstances, but to uh, uphold laws like this, which are so clearly out of sympathy with the majority of what the population think and feel, is simply a completely back-to-front way of governing uh, polity. So, uh, 
just a final note on this is that um, how I read uh, Adam Smith on Ireland, uh, then Adam Smith writes about Ireland in The Wealth of Nations towards the very end of the book. He describes a union between Ireland and Britain as one of the things you could do to um, address the national debt, which Smith is very worried about. Why can why is a union with Ireland going to help you do that? Um, partly because you can tax it more. And this is what other British advocates of union have uh, asserted. Um, hitherto, who I also talk about in the book, notably Josiah Tucker, but you can also um, uh, hope that through a union uh, you could start to untie the knot of this uh, of these penal laws. And he's not explicit about uh, abolishing him, but he what he expects is that a social dynamic uh, will develop where the Irish uh, nobility, once it goes off to Westminster and starts legislating there, will cease to be so invested in maintaining its social position within Ireland through this exclusionary system of legislation. Also, of course, uh, that a majority at Westminster could conceivably uh, abolish the laws without there needing to be a majority of Irish MPs to abolish the laws, uh, which is also, um, you know, we can see there are parallels there between um, uh, the way in which uh, Westminster can abolish the hereditary jurisdictions in Scotland after the Jacobite rebellion. So yes, there is this kind of Scottish model of reform through union, of reform to the internal social structure through union, which I think Smith has in mind when writing about Ireland. So union for Smith, it can solve your fiscal and imperial problem, uh, but it can also sort of reach into the deeper structures of Irish society and transform them on a, on a Scottish model. So it's Smith that brings together the two forms of exclusion, as I describe them in the book, exclusion of Ireland from British trading networks and exclusion of Catholics from social and political life within Ireland itself. Fantastic. And, and as you say, Adam Smith uh, is, a, is a very important figure in your book for, for, for several reasons, but Adam Smith never went to Ireland. I don't think so. Uh, how much is his uh, Scottish understanding of, of the Scottish Union influencing his his view on the potential success of a, of a of a similar union with Ireland and and does he really take into account the the sectarianism which is of a different order in in in, in Ireland than it, than it was in Scotland in 1707 yeah I think the way I've come to understand this is that you know Smith doesn't really talk about sectarianism he talks about faction and that's the language he shares with with Hume. And that in a sense, religious and political faction are so um, uh, mingled that they don't really have sort of any independent existence uh, from one another. And I think there is, uh, on an emotional or psychological level, perhaps a lack of comprehension about the independent existence of, uh, of religious conviction as independent from merely political allegiance that, you know, has... Uh, played and, and continues in some measure to play such a such a large role, uh, not just in Irish politics, but in, in modern politics more generally. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that Smith and Hume had a very good feel for that, or that describing everything in terms of enthusiasm or rationality or factionalism or patriotism is sort of whether those oppositions really capture that. I'm not sure it's their strong, their strong suit as theorists necessarily. So, you know, when Smith looks at Ireland, uh, he sees um the penal laws and Protestant ascendancy as being primarily a matter of um, 
ambition and self-interest and a desire uh, for renown politically, you know, among a, a provincial elite. So it's exactly the same problem in the context of America, he talks about as well. Well, of course, uh, uh, people in, you know, the Massachusetts State Assembly don't want to be told that they can't raise their own taxes, because if they can raise their own taxes, then they feel more important. Uh, so union, in a sense, uh, uh, and it's amazing, you know, Henry Dundas, Scottish uh, politician, fixer, uh, opponent or delayer of the abolition of the slave trade, among other things, um, really takes on this argument uh, in a speech to the Westminster Parliament promoting the union in 1801, really just kind of paraphrases this argument from Smith wholesale. So people want to feel important in their little provincial assembly, uh, and they'll do whatever it takes in order to consolidate their position there, which, you know, for Smith includes uh, passing laws which are uh, bigoted in a religious sense um, against the majority population. But if you sort of take the toys away from those people uh, and say, well, here's a much bigger game to play in Westminster, you'll draw them into broader imperial concerns and their position within Irish society will cease to be so important. That's that's essentially his understanding that it's, 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 it's to some degree about... Uh, it's about incentives and it's about recognition. And if you open up another source of recognition, um, another source of uh, reputation and renown to the Irish Protestant elite in Westminster, then they'll be more relaxed about um, uh, their social position within Ireland and vis-a-vis -vis Catholics. And in any case, you'll have the majority of non-Irish MPs who could always overrule them if, and, and get rid of penal legislation. So. Um, does he have much of a feel for sectarianism? No, but you know there are, for instance, Theobald McKenna, um, so a Catholic, initially sort of aligned with the United Irishman, Catholic lawyer in the 1790s, who becomes uh, increasingly sceptical of revolution, but doesn't kind of lose his sort of reformist ideals. He's someone who reads Smith and particularly the theory of moral sentiments to explain you know, how pernicious it is, and he's talking about the Orange Order, how pernicious it is to have a, uh, a group in society that's convinced of its uh, superiority, um, despite, uh, uh, you know, not necessarily being composed of individuals who uh, are uh, wealthy or who are uh, born from good families or who are educated or um, have any of the attributes which uh, uh, Smith and Burke and others would describe as um, lending you a superior position within the social structure. What McKenna talks about is how members of the Orange Order are, um, lots of them are workers and artisans and they just think they're better than uh, Catholics like him who are, who are, who are lawyers um, uh, just by virtue of being Protestant. So it's this, you know, he can look at a more granular level as to how um, sectarianism sort of distorts social structure. Great. That's, that's, that's very fascinating. And of course, while Adam Smith was writing his Wealth of Nation, he knew that there were <clears throat> disturbances, as he called it, in America, but of course didn't know what it, what it would eventually become. And, and, and one aspect of your book, one chapter of your book, deals with the influence of the American Revolution on Irish politics and its changing relations with Britain and, and France. It seems that <clears throat> I mean, the American Revolution sparked a sort of vicarious enthusiasm for independence in Ireland as well. And Molyneux's argument is, is brought back. But 
although they want independence, the Anglican elite, they also want access to the markets of the British Empire. And, and you do a very good job of, sh of showing how these demands are irreconcilable. And um, I wonder if you can say something more about these discussions that go on about Ireland's precise relationship uh, with, with the British Empire. Yeah. So, I mean, to sort of to, to, to go back to the start of the interview, the, 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 you know, the second chapter of the book is really where, you know, rubber, rubber hits road, if you like, about what it really means uh, to think of Ireland as having an independent legislature in Molyneux's sense, as being able to legislate for itself in all respects, subject to the approval of um, the, the Privy Council and the Crown, but with coordination with Britain only being done at the executive level and with a lot of pressure as well being put by, uh, you know, Irish patriots, so kind of oppositional Irish politicians on the ability of that executive coordination between the Irish and British parliaments to happen as well. And there is a kind of delicate uh, uh, dance at work here because, you know, I'm, I don't think that um, many people within Ireland were actively contemplating uh, you know, a declaration of independence on the American model. But the idea that they might be is very useful uh, to cultivate. And I think, you know, there are a number of examples that I cite in the book, which have also been discussed extensively by Irish historians of, of feints being made in this direction in kind of anonymous pamphlets uh, associated with the volunteer militia movement in Ireland that sort of, you know, gesture towards the idea of Ireland kind of exiting the British Empire, but which are always kind of skeptical, you know, hard to, hard to pin down on it. So it's partly a game of, of, of leverage, you know, how much can this latent threat of opening another front in the war of American independence, how far can it, can it get you? But there's also a, a uh, I think, a very real conceptual uh, problem uh, which we can recognize as sort of a problem of, of federalism, uh, although sort of having the crown there kind of makes it a different uh, situation. So, you know, what those negotiations in the 1780s between the Irish and the British parliaments about a new commercial settlement are about is uh, whether you can reconcile the idea that the Irish parliament and the British parliament are equal with the idea that the majority of Britain's colonies belong to Britain are a kind of property acquired by conquest or settlement that Ireland, you know, does not have an automatic right to access. And also, uh, what is the relationship of that empire uh, to Europe? Uh, because one of the most uh, compelling uh, visions of an Irish commercial future that emerges in the 1780s, um, and I talk about um, particularly um, one of the Genevan exiles uh, to Ireland, Etienne Clavier, who Richard Watmore, your St Andrew's uh, colleague, has, and I believe the director of the Institute, um, has, uh, has written a lot about in, in a couple of books now, uh, sees the potential for Ireland to be a, a free port to exist outside of uh, the British colonial system, which still at this point right, has a lot of tariffs, a lot of prohibitions, uh, a lot of regulated and managed trade between different parts of the world, monopoly companies uh, as well. So if Ireland can, you know, by writing its own tariff, effectively take itself out of all of that, what kind of transformative effect might this have on European trade? And this is where this sort of 
almost kind of, you know, nature discourse about Ireland comes in. Well, it has so many inlets, it has so many great rivers, uh, it has, you know, many navigable harbours. It's uh, made to be uh, the meeting point of Europe and the newly independent Americas. Um, and obviously, in a certain way, you know, in the island of today, it's openness to American investment, it's deep integration into, into the EU. That is, in a sense, what has, you know, what has happened. Yes, so, I, I, I was struck by the contemporary relevance of that period and, and those discussions. They reminded me so much of the Brexit negotiations. Indeed, yes. Independence, but simultaneously wanting access to the most important markets. Yeah, and there is this worry as well about, um, you know, which, you know, the sort of shoes on the other foot now, but the worry that lots of British, um, you know, politicians add, particularly, uh, I talk a lot in the uh, chapter about uh, John Holroyd, uh, sort of Lord, Lord Sheffield, who's, you know, one of these uh, kind of official slash politicians who sort of staffs up successive governments and sort of really is a, a man of business in the in the terminology of the of the time so he really knows his stuff when it comes to um uh you know specific commodities and where they come from and how they're taxed and so he has this entire elaborate theory when he writes observations on the trade of of Ireland uh, text in 1784 uh, about how Ireland could essentially be a backdoor into the British empire for other uh european empires and that this uh while he's of the view that Britain can stand the competition in terms of its manufacturers, what it can't stand is all of its uh, docking and warehousing and kind of logistical services potentially fleeing uh, to Ireland, as well as its uh, sugar colonies, which are at this point, you know, under a lot of pressure, particularly from Saint-Domingue, uh, the sort of booming French producer at the time, uh, that the sugar colonies can't stand the competition and while, again, he can see the kind of argument that someone like Adam Smith would make, well, then British consumers get cheaper sugar, what's the problem? He ultimately falls back on the Smithian argument about the Navigation Acts and the necessity of transatlantic trade for maintaining, uh, by which he also means uh, the slave trade, uh, for maintaining a, uh, uh, a navy competent to defend Britain's shores and to project British power in, in all parts of the world. Um, so there is ultimately a, a sort of security argument there that he thinks Ireland is undermining that. And yeah, what I find interesting about this is that uh, in the 1780s, Ireland is the backdoor uh, for Europe into Britain, uh, whereas obviously today the fear is uh, that uh, Ireland is the backdoor for Britain into Europe. Uh, so, so it's a sort of different dynamic, but a familiar one in some ways. And, and the Anglo-Irish are the Brexiters. Uh, of their day in the sense that they, they don't want to accept a common regulatory framework, but they want the benefits of access to, to British colonial markets. And this is something, again, actually, that Lord Sheffield sort of puts very pointedly. Um, they want to be independent, but they want uh, equal benefits. Uh, can they choose one or the other? Is something that he writes. He sounds like Michel Barnier or someone, <laughs> someone there. Yeah. Fantastic. I want to move move on now because... This is an age of repeated crises, and yeah. the next crisis that hits Irish politics is the French Revolution, mm -hmm. which has a profound effect on all of Europe, of course, but on Ireland in in a in a very particular way. 
course, it, it, it gives rise to the idea of a potential French invasion, not, not a Bourbon universal monarchy, which used to be the fear, but a different kind of invasion. An invasion mm. has a whole new vision of, of how to organize a commercial society. And, and you write about how, I hesitate to say a French vision of commercial society, because it's equally indebted to yes. a Scottish legacy, but a, a vision of, of, of how Ireland should, should be reformed, especially its agrarian interior. And you, and you focus especially on, on those two revolutionaries, Wolf Tone and, and Arthur O'Connor. I wonder if you can say a little bit about them. Yes. So, you know, as with the, I mean, the thing to say, obviously, about Ireland and the French Revolution is that it is a truly vast topic and the literature on, on 1798, the United Irish uh, Rebellion, is, is, is truly um, vast. Uh, so, you know, my book, you know, doesn't necessarily try to change the story of that rebellion, you know, as an event in itself. Uh, rather, what I try to do in kind of returning, in a sense, to the the sort of the, the published works of uh, some of the key revolutionaries is really draw out what's hiding in plain sight in terms of their understanding of the European political situation and their understanding of um, political economy and the commercial dimensions of, of Ireland's uh, subordinate place and in the British Empire. And, you know, we've already talked about how Smith, when talk, talking about union, links together this problem of Catholic exclusion with this problem of Irish commercial subordination. And the United Irishmen are doing that too, but they're doing it in a different way. Uh, so the way they come to understand the political situation is, you know, the blockages to reform within uh, the existing structure of empire and of parliamentary government uh, in Britain and Ireland are so great that you need outside intervention. You need France to invade and create the conditions where social reform can happen, by which they mean land reform, both of them, that can then create the conditions for democracy as they understand it. So France has to break the social and constitutional deadlock of Irish politics in the 1790s. After this kind of, if you like, sort of elite-led uh, diplomatic attempt at uh, reform in the 1780s has failed, uh, and as uh, the inescapability of sectarian tension and division within Irish society becomes more apparent through the early 1790s, um, there's this turn to France and to radical land reform as the agents that are going to break uh, that deadlock and guarantee, you know, at one stroke, Ireland's place in a European commercial order and um, the reconstitution of Irish society around uh, the equality of uh, at least of, 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 of male citizens um, and the redistribution of its land. Uh, now, there are differences of emphasis uh, between the two. Tone is definitely... I think more interested in, you know, Ireland's status. I don't think he has necessarily a uh, a sort of cosmopolitan uh, view. He's not, for instance, um, uh, averse to, as I talk about in the book. Sort of, there's early stages in his career where he's sort of uh, uh, thinking about uh, 
British expeditions to uh, uh, Hawaii at the same time as he's writing publicly pamphlets. Uh, he's writing to Pitt to ask for support for expeditions to Hawaii, while at the same time uh, denouncing, you know, British uh, mercantile imperialism in his in his published pamphlets. Uh, but I think that's more a reflection on him. Uh, both the kind of interesting hybridity of what it is to be uh, Anglo-Irish and working out your position in this kind of imperial polity at that time, that it's not easy. It's not easy to know where you should fit and what you should be trying to do. Um, but also a kind of, uh, you know, he's an adventurous uh, character and he's quite uh, flexible and he is willing to um, take a lot of different ideas and projects on. Whereas Arthur O'Connor, uh, uh, who I also talk about in the book, um, he really comes to the United Irishman quite late. He's very well connected with British Whigs. He's sort of friends with, with Charles Fox. Um, but he read Adam Smith while at Trinity College, Dublin, and has been a kind of conviction Smithian sort of ever since. Uh, and uh, when he then reads Thomas Paine, as Wolf Tone does as well, he sees the potential for this kind of radicalised reading of Smith which is what makes him so uh, convinced that land reform is the kind of sine qua non, is the starting point. Uh, you have to sort out the land question, you have to um, start breaking up Protestant ascendancy through partitive inheritance laws modelled on those of France. Uh, otherwise, you can't even start to construct an Irish nation capable of acting politically, he says. The first action of an Irish constituent assembly is to introduce partitive inheritance. So in, in both cases, uh, though, you have an interest in having full commitment from France to an invasion. And this is something that, you know, again, this is not a new story I'm telling here. I'm sort of filling it out in terms of its intellectual uh, content. But, you know, Marianne Elliott wrote uh, in her book, Partners of Revolution, about how there is this constant pressure from the United Irish representatives in Paris for them to commit enough troops for a revolution to happen, happen swiftly and totally. Whereas the French have more of an interest in turning Ireland into, as they term it, another Vendée. So a place where the British are tied up, kind of fighting a kind of insurgency over a long period of time. So there's a sort of push and pull uh, between those visions. Um, but certainly for the United Irishmen, French power is the, is the key that unlocks um, uh, 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 thoroughgoing reform in Irish society in a way that British power has not been capable to do, capable of doing. And that goes back then to this whole question that Montesquieu and others have dealt with about, you know, the power of interests in British parliamentary politics, the, the power of corruption in British parliamentary politics, that um, the landed interest and the mercantile interest, uh, and this is a very sort of French revolutionary reading of, of, of British politics that Britain is ruled by a kind of oligarchy that's at once mercantile and aristocratic and uh, will defend, um, you know, both feudal laws like primogeniture, so the inheritance of the firstborn, entail, you know, taking uh, estates kind of off the market to keep them as uh, integral holes, uh, while at the same time being, you know, greedy and aggressive uh, uh, in, in terms of mercantile politics and, you know, actually uh, uh, the landed interest and the mercantile interest kind of back each other up and, and march in, in lockstep. So this is why, you know, under British rule for the United Irishmen, Ireland is unreformable, whereas France, because it's 
smashed its aristocracy, uh, smashed its land system. And although it may be engaging in forms of uh, mercantile aggression or protectionism, that's only as a measure of self-defense against Britain. Uh, and they will eventually uh, want to pursue a kind of cosmopolitan regime of free trade once Perfidious Albion is, is slain. Um, France is ultimately the better protector for Ireland because it's done the hard work of reforming its social system, whereas the British Revolution is still, you know, somewhere on the horizon uh, when it's bankrupted by, by the war, is what they think is going to happen. So there is what I wanted to bring out about the thought of these United Irishmen is that they have this kind of geopolitical or geoeconomic understanding of Britain and France's relative positions, and it's a a choice and and one which isn't a you know in in the broadest terms not not an irrational choice to see that that revolutionary France is the coming power and that Britain's model of social organisation and of foreign policy and of war finance that that come with that may be exhausting itself. Fantastic. Um, so with the looming threat of 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 a French invasion, the British government under William Pitt sets in motion a campaign for a union with Ireland as a geopolitical necessity by this point. And you've already mentioned Henry Dundas and how he uh, formulates his uh, proposal for a union in very Scottish terms, relying on, on Adam Smith in particular. But when the union debates occur, there's also enormous interest in this British crisis from abroad and especially from the continent. And I'm wondering what you can can say about the perception of the union itself on the continent? Yeah, I guess in a sense, I would say that there's more interest in the rebellion of 1798 on uh, the continent than there is uh, in the union. Uh, uh, my impression was from my research was that 1798 was of a lot of interest on the European continent because it fitted in with a narrative of uh, British crisis and decline at just the moment in the war when nearly uh, all of Britain's allies had exited uh, the coalition against revolutionary France. And it's a sort of, uh, it's a battle of the giants between British sea power and, and French dominance uh, on land. And it's kind of, how is this going to go? And Ireland looks like a sort of crack in, in the British uh, facade. That's what 1798 looks like. Uh, so, you know, I talk a little bit about um, you know, some German revolutionaries like Andreas Riem um, uh, talk a bit about the journal Minerva, which carries a surprising amount of uh, material uh, from and about Ireland, including, you know, articles by Napatandi, a prominent United Irishman. So I talk about that a bit uh, in the book as part of the way in which Ireland fits into a broader narrative about British corruption and decline among uh, French aligned propagandists, if you like, uh, particularly in the German-speaking world, which is obviously the kind of battleground uh, in terms of opinion at this point because of Prussian neutrality in the war. And Prussian neutrality in the war with France, which is, you know, after the Treaty of Basel in 1795, Prussia stops fighting against France, doesn't re-enter the war until 10 years later. Um, so uh, this is where, this is the context in which Kant is writing about perpetual peace, uh, Kant, uh, Emmanuel Kant, Prussian philosopher, obviously also uh, quite sceptical about Britain, writes in his essay, Theory and Practice, about British war finance as a problem for European peace. Um, so this is the context against this kind of tide of material about uh, British corruption, British decline, British aggression, 
British opposition to the progressive principles of the French Revolution that Friedrich Gentz uh, decides to write this series of articles about the Irish Union with Britain. So Gentz was at one time a student of Kant's. Uh, he is a Prussian state official. He has a variety of different positions in the 1790s, including as a uh, local administrator in um, uh, the former Commonwealth of Poland-Lithuania, which has been partitioned by Prussia, Austria, and, and Russia for the final time uh, in the early 1790s. So uh, he's someone with, uh, you know, administrative institutional experience, but he's also in that kind of classic Prussian Kantian sense, uh, a kind of public intellectual. So he's very active in the Berlin kind of coffee house scene of the 1790s. Uh, he translates notably Edmund Burke's reflections on the revolution in France, and uh, also is a great reader of Adam Smith, uh, instigates uh, the major German translation of uh, Smith. So he's very much someone who is a conduit for British thought into the Prussian public sphere. And he sort of takes on this role again in writing about British-Irish Union. And Gentz's message about the Union is that it shows that Britain is capable of reform. And, you know, as I've already emphasised, you know, this is the big charge against Britain uh, in uh, the era of the American and French revolutions that... Maybe, you know, at some point uh, after the 1688 revolution, uh, it was a country of uh, liberty and prosperity relative to its uh, monarchical European peers. But now there is a new, there's a new game in town. There's a new political and economic model. There's a Republican government and there is uh, uh, free trade. And uh, there is also anti-slavery. And Britain in the 1790s appears to be dragging its feet on all of those things, is not uh, progressing uh, on any of those fronts and instead seems to be the arch funder of a reactionary aristocratic uh, defense of the old order. So what Gentz sees in the union is a demonstration that Britain has a capacity for reform and not just that Britain has a capacity for reform, but for a superior variety of reform to that offered by France, that where France offers you war, disorder, revolution, four constitutions in a decade, terminating in uh, Caesarist dictatorship in, in the form of, of Napoleon, um, Britain offers exactly the model of uh, top-down administrative reform aimed at promoting prosperity and order uh, that Gentz also sees the Prussian state as potentially embodying. So uh, this is the kind of identity that, that Gentz sort of tries to build, I think, between the Prussian and the British elites through his translation activities, but also through these texts about Ireland, where he, uh, you know, characterizes the United Irish uh, rebellion as a kind of French-sponsored uh, act of terrorism, and uh, the Union as a beneficial reform that not only, you know, shows Britain leading the way in Europe, but also suggests to Gentz, and he writes about this in a, another essay that he writes and publishes at the same time, uh, which is a response to Kant's perpetual peace essay. Uh, he also thinks that what Europe needs is a series of unions. Needs, Europe has, particularly Germany, 
has far too many small states. They need to be consolidated into larger states so that a more stable balance of power exists between them. And you don't get these uh, this recurring uh, fate of Germany to be a conflict zone uh, between you know, France, Austria, and Russia. So there's also this sense that union is a sort of political technology that you can apply to solve other problems of European order at the time, because you need states of a certain size for them to be viable in terms of their ability to defend themselves, but also to be viable commercially in order to have extensive internal markets. So, you know, this is an aspect of union that appeals to Gentz as well in the way that it appealed to Smith that, uh, okay, you know, free trade between states might be difficult to engineer, but, you know, given that many European states at the time, you know, had internal customs barriers and, you know, the British Empire also has a set of internal customs barriers, um, union might be something that enables an expanded division of labor within expanded and consolidated states. And that could unleash a lot of prosperity as well. So there's also an economic dimension to Gens's thinking. Yes. And, and it's interesting that you point out the economic dimension because uh, the union goes ahead, and although it's it's compromised in all sorts of ways, um, William Pitt fails to persuade George III of Catholic emancipation, but it goes ahead and it is initially, it does initially produce uh, an economic boom in Ireland, which contemporaries comment upon and sees as the union having an, a positive effect. But it's perhaps, as you write, a bit misleading because this takes place during the Napoleonic Wars, and therefore, Ireland benefits from, from Britain's war economy and from Britain's Britain having been sort of cut off from its uh, continental trading partners. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about the immediate uh, post-war or post-union boom that happens in, in Ireland and, and, and the arguments that it sets up uh, later for later in the 19th century. Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, we do see a, a change in register in, in, in how political economic debate about Ireland evolves after the Union, which is partly a result of change in flows of information created uh, uh, by the Union. So uh, there's a, a sort of a long process over the first few decades of the 19th century, whereby rural life in Ireland uh, comes under the purview, um, under the eyes, if you like, of uh, British legislators, but also uh, of the British public sphere more broadly uh, through parliamentary reports, uh, through the dissemination in Britain of writing by, you know, Irish agricultural uh, societies and improvers, also, you know, travel writing within Ireland, always a strong, a strong genre, really takes off further after Union. And uh, this, I think, really changes how people think about Ireland, uh, because, I mean, one thing, and this is an accusation made during the Union debates about, you know, the likes of Smith or Dundas uh, or William Pitt the Younger, even the kind of things they promise uh, for Ireland, is that it's very good on the abstracts of, you know, what is commercial society and uh, how will sectarian animosities break down uh, when uh, Irish MPs are transferred to Westminster and all of these sort of uh, social theoretical kind of hypotheses, but what the pro-union side is light on is concrete knowledge about the Irish economy and the specific ways in which it benefits from having uh, a domestic legislature and, you know, measures of 
of protection from foreign competition and specific premiums and legislation, things like grain bounties to assist in the export of grain uh, from uh, the Irish interior to Dublin and from there to other places in the British Empire. So these this sort of granular knowledge, this granular knowledge of Irish society and the Irish economy is missing, and then it rapidly has to be created uh, in in London. In other respects, though, the union isn't as much of a break in terms of Irish political economy, because that boom you mentioned has already been taking shape over several decades. Uh, before 1801, there is this real uh, shift um, that, you know, Irish agrarian historians start to see happening in the 1770s and 1780s uh, already. This shift away from, you know, a grazing economy, a pastoral economy, to a tillage economy. And what's driving this is British urbanization and industrialization. Um, and then, you know, what, what the war does is really amplifies uh, that dynamic by cutting Britain off from the Baltic grain trade. So access to grain from, uh, particularly from, uh, uh, from the Russian empire, uh, uh, including at that time, uh, Ukraine. Um, but particularly, I think, where British uh, grain is coming from, a lot of it's coming from, you know, northern, you know, what's now uh, Poland. So cutting Britain off from that uh, is, is which particularly, of course, Napoleon's continental system does during that brief moment towards the end of the 1800s, when there's also a treaty between uh, the French Empire and the Russian Empire, uh, where the Russians are also ostensibly participating in a blockade of trade to Britain, that's when Britain's really isolated in terms of its food supply. So this, you know, adds another level of, of demand. Um, but the thing, so I've talked about two things here, the more granular appreciation of, uh, of Irish rural life that develops after the union and expanded demand uh, for Irish grain in Britain, um, particularly wheat, but also oats, barley, so what this generates within Britain, and Malthus uh, is, T.R. Malthus is one of the first uh, to really pick up on this, is that the Irish uh, boom, as you call it, is actually happening on foundations which for British political economists of that generation are very distorted and unsustainable. So union is producing a situation, uh, union in the circumstances of war, is producing a situation where Ireland has over-specialized in uh, exporting one commodity, uh, grain, but the way it's producing that is by having a large population of uh, so-called cotier subtenants, so people who live on small uh, subtenancies, you know, from a mixture of potatoes that they grow themselves and from wage labor on these kinds of farms that cultivate grain as what one observer, Thomas Newenham, who kind of champions this model, who cultivate grain as a great manufactory. So you have this kind of cash crop model feeding British factories with Irish grain, but underpinning it is this uh, shadow economy of potato cultivation. And Malthus thinks uh, that this is catastrophic uh, because it's enabling very rapid uh, Irish uh, population growth in circumstances where uh, ultimately employment for those hands is going to is going to run out fantastic that was very interesting and and uh, you mentioned Mal Malthus's interventions 
uh, into the debate about Ireland and how he is one of the people who's trying to produce this more granular understanding of Irish society and how how it is uh, configured and what kinds of uh, conditions underlays the economic boom and how that uh, is unsustainable in the long term. And, and as you write in your book, when Britain emerges from the Napoleonic Wars, there is a, an immediate post-war uh, crisis, a, a recession, and it exposes a lot of the issues with uh, the Irish economy that Malthus has, has, has pointed out. And it seems to me that what happens is from that point on, from 1815, there are really two versions of commercial society, one that is British and one that is French, and they're both projected onto the to Ireland as the, the best solution for Ireland. You mentioned in your book that um, in Britain, there emerges this orthodoxy that what Ireland needs is to become more like uh, England, and, and have agricultural institutions that are more like the English in order for its economy to become sustainable. Can you say a little bit about how this orthodoxy emerges? Yes. Um, so a lot of what I think is is going on in, you know, when the British economists like uh, Malthus, like uh, uh, J.R. McCulloch, uh, Nassau Senior, these sorts of people who are talking about Ireland uh, from the 1810s through the 1830s, what they're really thinking about is the English poor law and particularly the problem of, you know, what happens when people have access to some form of subsistence other than wages in the market. They're very invested in the disciplinary function that wages have on reproduction. So if there is demand for your labor, uh, uh, then, you know, you should have children in line with that demand and then stop. The problem with you being able to feed yourself, as in the Irish case from these small potato plots, uh, is that uh, uh, you will just continue uh, reproducing. Uh, there'll be nothing to uh, check you. And so uh, the sexual pleasure of reproduction compel you to keep having children. That's that's how they, uh, Severi and Deborah Lenza in her forthcoming book about Malthus talks about the kind of strange kind of, you know, psychosexual foundations of this of this view of the world, but but that is the the fear of if it's too easy for you to grow your own food, uh, then uh, you will not reproduce in line with the discipline of the market. That is the fundamental uh, concern, uh, and and this is the sort of social catastrophe that 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 threatens uh, Britain if the poor law is not reformed uh, and if uh, people are not exposed more to the discipline of the labour market, uh, and Ireland if the cottier system is not. Uh, abolished. Now, the, the problem in transferring this understanding uh, to Ireland uh, is that uh, urbanization is not happening at the same rate in Ireland as it is in Britain. So there is nowhere for people living on the land to go necessarily in the sense that there is quite large scale rural urban migration in Britain at this time. Uh, uh, and, and that, in a sense, is, is the safety valve for Britain's growing uh, population. Um, uh, and, you know, the way these economists see it as well, that migration is great. It means we can then have very efficient, uh, highly productive agriculture with relatively few hands um, uh, to produce food for these growing cities. Uh, and that is essentially uh, the model. So and, and the interesting thing about this is that it's not just presented in these domestic terms of 
British society and the balance of town and country within Britain. It's also presented as the reason why Britain won the Napoleonic Wars, uh, that the French revolutionaries thought that uh, peasant proprietorship, petite culture, um, was uh, uh, a superior mode of social organization. They thought that you know small landholders were patriotic citizens and good soldiers, um, but no, it turned out that uh, Britain's superior agrarian efficiency through having these large farms uh, enabled it to win the war. Um, and now the task is to stop uh, Ireland uh, going further down this uh, uh, path of uh, rural immiseration through overpopulation on small and inefficient uh, land holdings. Um, so there is this geopolitical element to it as well. Now, on, so, you know, in the last chapter of the book, I talk, talk about that, its presentation as a kind of British model of Irish agrarian reform. But the problem with that is that it diagnoses a problem, too many people on the land, without coming up with a solution uh, that, you know, is anything other than than, than horrifying and that people at the time recognize as, as, as horrifying, which is to just get rid of them somehow, to either force them to go somewhere else or um, to expose them to levels of, of immiseration that would, would risk death. And of course, um, through the famine, that is in a sense uh, what ultimately happens because this ideal of transforming the Irish uh, landscape and its settlement and its population to conform with a supposed uh, British model of consolidated farms with relatively few people on them, you know, that's not given up on through the famine. It guides a lot of it guides a lot of policy through the famine. So if that's the British model, the what I describe as the French model, and which is described at the time as the système française uh, by an author called Jacques Troz, who I, I cite in the book, um, is uh, the product of revolutionary land reform. So it it is to take um, uh, tenants um, and subtenants and to give them real property in the land uh, at the cost of reducing the scope of aristocratic estates. Um, and then the question is, well, how do you do that without unleashing a revolution? So, um, so you know, Swiss uh, political economist uh, Sismondi talks about, uh, uh, well, Parliament would have to do that. Parliament would have to pass uh, legislation annulling, converting tenancies into uh, property. Uh, Hegel, of all people, also talks about the need for doing this if there's to be a modern system of land law in Britain at all. That there are no uh, modern property relations in Britain at all because property is all a product of uh, privilege and precedent, and there's never been any kind of rational consideration of what its purpose is, and obviously. What he has in mind there are the Prussian land reforms of the Napoleonic era, which you know did transfer a lot of land uh, to, um, or were thought to have transferred a lot of land to um, former tenants in the 1800s and 1810s. Um, so there are these models of land reform, you know, by legislation and without revolution, uh, that uh, are being taken up at this point. For Gustave de Beaumont, who I spend the most time talking about in this in this final chapter, though. Uh, the solution is through inheritance, is to make sure that when land uh, becomes available through the death of its owner, that it is uh, divided uh, into multiple parcels uh, through partitive uh, inheritance. You, you, you end your book with Ireland 
constituting a kind of allegation against Britain, which has now emerged as a, a hegemon in Europe. Um, uh. Do you see a sort of an inconsistency, perhaps, in the means and the ends here, uh, as they were proposed by, by authors such as Beaumont? Yes, I think that, um, you know, de Beaumont shares this concern with Alexis de Tocqueville. Obviously, they are kind of intellectual collaborators. And, you know, many of the thoughts Beaumont has uh, shared uh, uh, by Tocqueville uh, in his in his journal of his of his journeys in, in England and Ireland in 1835. So it is a kind of shared outlook. And, you know, like Tocqueville, de Beaumont is concerned about centralization and over-centralization. Um, so he doesn't really, it doesn't sit well with him, the idea that, uh, you know, essentially a load of uh, bureaucrats in Westminster will sort of decide on the redistribution of Irish land. Uh, so this is why the uh, solution proposed by Sismondi of a comprehensive program of, of land transfer if you like, uh, Beaumont finds too extreme, he would rather affect it indirectly by changing uh, inheritance law. Um, I mean, I think the other thing with Beaumont is that he, uh, like many people in the early 1840s, when Daniel O'Connell's repeal movement, so the Irish uh, kind of liberal Catholic nationalist leader, Daniel O'Connell, is campaigning to repeal the Union at the time that de Beaumont is writing, I think, uh, you know, they have a real sense that that campaign might succeed, uh, that um, Britain and Ireland are actually societies that are too different from one another to share a single government in the form of a union. Um, so, uh, you know, I think one of the valences of Beaumont's book, and this is something that their, their friend, the Italian uh, uh, liberal future prime minister, Camillo de Cavour, picks up on as well, is a sense that actually uh, union might be unsustainable. Now, obviously, in the long run, they are right about that. Um, but uh, I think it is interesting to note that um, uh, obviously, uh, what Beaumont writes, you know, has its own agency in terms of how Britain then uh, responds to problems uh, in Ireland. So John Stuart Mill is a very close associate of the. Uh, of, of de Tocqueville and of, of de Beaumont meets them when they're in, in England. Uh, and, you know, in the 1840s, his own writing on Ireland uh, and on the land question more generally takes on this position of rehabilitating uh, the small producer, the peasant proprietor, and diversifying uh, uh, the models that, that British liberal political economy thinks is, uh, thinks are, you know, conceivably viable ways of operating a a society that is at once agrarian and commercial, as as Ireland has 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 become, uh, and and you can see from there that there is a, a trajectory, a road from uh, this European critique of British political economy in Ireland in the early nineteenth century, which has its roots right in this advocacy of peasant proprietorship that goes all the way back to the French Revolution, yeah. this European critique which has its roots in the French Revolution, which can then play quite a significant role in constituting um, land reform uh, in Ireland uh, under British auspices, you know, in a kind of creative tension with Irish land reform movements like the Land League through the 1880s and 1890s to produce, you know, under a conservative government, a unionist government, 
uh, around the turn of the 20th century, exactly the kind of large scale transfer of land uh, to Irish tenant farmers uh, that uh, Sismondi and Hegel and others are advocating, you know, 60 years previously, thinking of land reform after the French Revolution. Um, so there is, I think, a sense in which uh, uh, British liberalism and then ultimately British unionism are capable of uh, internalizing and metabolizing, if you like, this uh, European critique of British political economy in Ireland. And there's also a sense in which, um, uh, as I also write about towards the end of the book, the character of Irish uh, nationalism is also impacted uh, by this. I talk about uh, in the book Young Ireland and their reading of these uh, French uh, writers on Ireland and how they uh, turn sort of as the repeal movement begins to falter, they turn back to the land question uh, as the decisive one uh, for creating a kind of Irish nationality. And they make a series of very interesting moves where they take uh, the model of land reform bequeathed to them by the French Revolution and integrate it with um, antiquarian readings of what uh, sort of pre-Anglo-Norman uh, uh, Irish landholding was like. So this is when, when Thomas Davis, this Irish nationalist historian and, and, and poet and writer and founder of the Young Ireland movement writes about uh, Irish land. He talks in these antiquarian terms of gavel kind, of udalism, as he terms it. Um, but he also says that, well, this is exactly what the French economists uh, are advocating. So one of the sort of last things the book, the book tries to do is kind of shift our perception of that uh, mid 19th century Irish nationalism and recognizing its character as a kind of continental liberalism influenced by this French political economy. Yes, and I, I, I think one of the fascinating things about your book is that you really, you point out that, uh, as you just did now, that this French critique of, of British rule in Ireland and this preference for peasant proprietors, uh, it has an influence in Britain through John Stuart Mill and others, which eventually, as you say, leads to um, uh, the essential buyout of, of the Anglo-Irish aristocracy and, and a redistribution of land similar to what to the one that has been proposed for 60, 70 years. But it also has a similar and opposite effect on Irish nationalism, uh, which works against uh, the British efforts, much belated efforts to save the union through a land reform. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's a lot of ironies at play here that I find really fascinating. And, and I, I like the way you bring them out in, in, in your book. Um, I have just one last question to ask you, James. Where do you go from here? What are uh -huh. you working on now? And what might we expect from your hand in the future? Well, um, uh, so I have sort of two things on the go right now. Uh, one smaller, the other bigger. Um, the smaller and, and sort of still island-focused project is that I'm interested in um, ideas about uh, uh, natural resources in Ireland, uh, so in the history of sort of Irish mining in particular, and of the problem of Irish energy uh, in the same period that the book covers sort of late 18th through mid 19th century. And that's been sparked by some, some new work 
I've been doing on uh, someone called Robert Kane, who uh, wrote a book called The Industrial Resources of Ireland in 1844, which is a kind of manifesto for a uh, exactly actually how to exit this. It's it's a third option I don't consider in the in the book because I hadn't read Robert Kane at the time, uh, where you don't have to do uh, French style land reform. But you also don't have to uh, clear your estates of their uh, populations in line with the diktats of British political economists, that instead you can uh, cultivate um, localised industrial employment in Ireland to create a different kind of industrial society to the one emerging in Britain. So, you know, he's very influenced by Jean-Baptiste Say, by, I think, by Saint-Simon as well. He has a lengthy correspondence with uh, Justus von Liebig, the German chemist, which I'm currently reading in, in Munich. Um, so, so he's an interesting figure, and I think he opens up a whole world of thinking about Irish science and natural resources and how that could be written into the history of Irish political economy in this period. Um, and then the other work that I'm doing is about, uh, in a sense, part, you know, where this kind of Franco-British problematic goes in the 19th century, uh, and I'm I'm working on the uh, commercial treaty between France and Britain in 1860, which inaugurates a kind of wave or a network, as it's sometimes termed, of bilateral commercial treaties among European states during the 1860s. And, you know, a lot's been written about them from the perspective of economic history, but their political and intellectual history has uh, been left relatively untouched. Um, and I'm trying to understand kind of what their Significance is in terms of, you know, this is a decade where German unification is going on, where the American Civil War is going on, where the Franco-Prussian War breaks out, sort of how this network of commercial treaties relates to European uh, geopolitics um, in the 1860s, and also what the place of European colonies are in those treaties. Some of them cover colonies, some of them don't, and I want to see in exactly the way I do actually in the second chapter of, of the Irish book, kind of see what those... Uh, how those negotiations play out when it comes to the different bits of European empires and how they're comprehended by the treaties um, or not. So things things that are on the boil. It may be it may be a little while before anything uh, issues from either of those projects, but they're they're keeping me entertained. Yes, it seems like you have your hands full with lots of of, of interesting stuff. Uh, I hope so. Yeah. That we can all look forward to. I'll just say it's been a great pleasure talking to you today, James. And Thank you. I wish you all the best for your future research. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having me on. <laughs>